0: Who would be on your council of Southern Mary? Who do you draw that from yourself?
1: Well, I would start with family, uh, my parents. I loved my father and admired him hugely as a vocational doctor who, you know, almost didn't take holidays. And I didn't really uh, identify as much with my mother until I started to run for the presidency. And then I had to open up. And the more I opened up, the more I became like my wonderful mother. (laughs) And, (laughs) And... My grandfather, as a lawyer who didn't know how to speak to a child, taught me about justice. He would talk about law to a 10-year-old, 11-year-old, as if I was an adult, and I loved that. Welcome to Lighting a Fire. All things teaching and learning with the Teaching Council. It
0: is a personal and a professional delight to be welcome in introducing our keynote uh, speaker for this year's fail Because I think it's fair to say that throughout her life and up to the present day, she has lived and exemplified those hallmarks of our shared humanity, imagination, creativity, resilience and hope. And so many ways, perhaps Mary Robinson doesn't need an introduction. Um, she's fought for social justice right throughout her life. I was too young to vote in the presidential election of 1990, but I remember very clearly that sense of history and her inauguration as president. And she hasn't wrestled with that and even our achievements in the interim. She continues to this present day to inspire us, not just as a nation, but as a whole globe, through her work with the elders, her work in human rights, and of course, most recently, uh, climate justice. Mary, it's a delight to have you here this morning. You're very welcome.
1: Thank you very much, Thomas.
0: Mary, we have over two and a half thousand people watching online. We're trending number two on Twitter at the moment already an hour and a half into the event. You've clearly garnered a huge amount of interest and enthusiasm and people are really keen to hear what you have to say. And I'm really keen to have a, a conversation with you more than an interview, if that's okay with you. Sure. Mary, in terms of Feilche, um it's a celebration of teachers, You have an immense perspective to offer on this. Why do you think it's important to celebrate teachers?
1: Well, of course, I'm a teacher myself. I started by teaching law um, in Trinity College. And I do value greatly uh, the role of teachers. But I think the whole country and indeed all around the world, we've learned to value in a special way because teachers had to adapt to covid and adapted wonderfully, as we've already heard from the minister and from your chairperson. And I agree very much with what they've said, um, not just in teaching, but also in examining and in, in being uh, mindful of the fact that it's difficult for young people not to be able to socialize, to have to keep a social distance, to have you know, all of those things. And I, I think it's just wonderful. And I think every parent in the country values teachers more now because they did their homeschooling during the lockdown. <laughs> and learned how difficult it is to homeschool well. So all in all, I think the teaching profession uh, is seen as being vital to the economy. That's why we had to open our schools. And so all in all, uh, I couldn't agree more with what has been said.
0: I think you're touching on a lot of feedback I picked up myself over the past couple of months that parents have a newfound appreciation for the complexity of teaching on the one hand, but a newfound understanding of how important the interpersonal is in the whole endeavor. And I think as you've acknowledged yourself and the chairperson minister said, the schools respond with great professionalism and alacrity throughout the crisis, both to keep teaching and learning going and to get open and stay open, as you say. What do you think we've learned about ourselves as a society and as a nation throughout all of that?
1: I think COVID has been very interesting because we're all out of our comfort zone. Uh, It is not a great leveller. Some people have said it is, it isn't. It actually exacerbates uh, inequalities. So for those who are in abusive households, for those who are in poverty, it's worse because of COVID, much, much worse. But we're all affected. And I think Basically, I often talk about four lessons from COVID. I'll just go through them briefly. The first lesson, which is important for me in talking about climate, is that collective human behavior really matters. It's actually what's protecting us from the virus because we don't have a a vaccine. It's our collective willingness to comply with lockdown if we have to, but also social distancing, hand-washing, etc., that's saving us it's saving the frontline workers it's protecting us we have to you know understand that power when we're coming out of covid and worried about the climate crisis secondly government matters and i think that's important all around the world now that government good government deals well with covid bad government doesn't and it's very visible we we all know the countries that aren't leading well thirdly science matters this is really important. At the moment, it's health science. It's the health experts every evening on RTE and, uh, you know, our other media, um, beside often the minister, you know, determining what the phase will be. And we listen carefully and we, we must and should. We must listen to the climate scientists. And then uh, the last thing, and I think it's a, a very important, is because it's very important to your team of empathy. Um, we have learned to have more empathy for the other because we're all out of our comfort zone. It, it makes us more neighborly. I see it all over the country. Um, people you know, working hard to help those who are more affected, more lonely, more in need of support.
0: Mary, you've spoken very eloquently and very movingly of, on the one hand, the crisis, and many in Irish education would agree with you on this, has exposed the inequities of our system and our society very starkly. It speaks to the sense of apocalypse. The original meaning of that word was to unveil. You've also spoke of the importance of collective behaviour, both as a, a communities, as a government. Are you hopeful, Mary? Do you think from a global perspective that we are responding sufficiently cohesively to, to the, the, to the crisis emerge and the inequities that have been
1: revealed? Well, you know, I think I'm going to surprise you a little. I'm more hopeful now than I was last January. Wow! Last January we were starting 2020. It was to be the year when we were going to see great ambition to address climate, and actually we were not seeing it. And then COVID hit, and nobody would wish COVID on the world. Of course, it has been devastating. It has been. It has exacerbated the inequalities that we've been saying. Um, it's unfair, etc. But it has also uh, disrupted business as usual. And the reality is, as the children keep telling us in their Fridays for Future, business as usual was not bringing us to a safe world or a safe future, particularly for them who would have to live through more of it. So uh, now we, we have to build back better, as the UN th- says to us. We have to come out of COVID much more realizing that we actually have to take seriously that other crisis, And that it will be a good future if we take the steps that we need to take. And we have a government that has committed. It it was formed during COVID and has committed to being very serious about climate, which I very much welcome. And in schools, you know, it's going to be possible to educate for, you know, a, a different way of behaving in order that we can all play our part in, in that future that I am more hopeful about.
0: That's, that's that you, you have surprised me, I have to say, but you've also, and we were talking about this earlier on, Mary, you, you've inspired me in ways you wouldn't know over the years, because I'm going to make a small confession to you now. Um, some years ago, as part of a reflective exercise, I designed my own council of seven. So these would be seven people in real life or in fiction who well, I would turn to my mind's eye to unpack a question or a challenge I was facing. My wife is on that council. A character from my favourite novel, from when I was younger, is on that council. But believe it or not, you have been on that council from the very beginning. And I dare say, if others out there were watching, were to ask them to design their own council, they'd put you on it as well. Who would be on your council of and Mary? Who, who, in, in, your hope, your inspiration? Where, who do you draw that from yourself?
1: Well, I would start with family. Uh, my parents. Uh, I loved my father and admired him hugely as a vocational doctor who, you know, almost didn't take holidays. And I didn't really uh, identify as much with my mother until I started to run for the presidency. And then I had to open up. And the more I opened up, the more I became like my wonderful mother. (laughs) And and my grandfather, as a lawyer who didn't know how to speak to a child, taught me about justice. He would talk about law to a 10-year-old, 11-year-old, as if I was an adult and I loved that. And then I think I'm so lucky. I have met incredible people. I mean, obviously, Nelson Mandela is the most extraordinary man I have ever met. And he invited me ultimately to join his group of elders that I now chair. Uh, Archbishop Tutu, um, Jimmy Carter, who uh, was 93, uh, 96 on the, on the, on the 1st of October. Wow. I'm in touch with him and I sent him a nice note and he responded. Wow. He's just such a wonderful, um human rights person as president of, of the United states you know it's it, it's hard to believe now how things have deteriorated <laughs> but um but you know um so I, I these are people that i've learned so much from and love, but also you know, I wrote a book about climate justice, and that book was about grassroots women, yes. poor women, indigenous women, yes. and then three um two good men the eleven stories, nine about women, and two good men but basically these were. Showing how to change your own community by building resilience and hope.
0: There's a, in your answer there, Mary, and it echoes the book in Well on Climate Justice, there's a wonderful thread between the very, very local, the very personal, and the very, very global in, in the Elders Council, for example. And I think it's probably a great inspiration to those watching you. Your first answers were your family, your father, your uncle, and so forth. Tell us a bit more about your work in the Elders and, and, and what does that involve, please?
1: Well, it was a great honor to be invited, um, in 2007, uh, to join with Nelson Mandela, with his wife, Grassa Michelle, with Archbishop Tutu as our chair, Kofi Annan, um, other people who mightn't be so well known, but are fantastic leaders like Laktar Bahimi, who worked for peace in Afghanistan, in, uh, you know, in all the hotspots in the world, Um uh, Hina Jalani, a wonderful, um, Pakistani lawyer. And what we do is we work well, what we were told by Nelson Mandela to do was to be humble and to know that when we went into any situation, people there knew more than we did. So listen. You know, the power of sitting and listening before you speak. <laughs> and <laughs> and we, we, we try to work quietly for peace and human rights and increasingly in relation to the climate crisis. We sometimes do public things. We took on under... Archbishop Tutu as our chair, we took on early child marriage. We couldn't believe, I I, I must say, I was as shocked as Archbishop Tutu to learn that 10 million girls a year marry well before they're able for it, well before they're physically or mentally able. And do you know something? COVID is making that worse. COVID has had a very bad impact on girls dropping out of education and being pushed through poverty into early marriage. And it's very sad because it's You know, it it, it prevents them from having safe childbirth. It prevents them from continuing in education. It has such an impact. And of course, it's bad for the communities because girls being educated well helps their communities.
0: Mary, you you mentioned there what Nelson Mandela's kind of initial instruction or guidance was simply listening. And in your experience of leadership across many different domains at different levels and and nations and and, at a global level, How good is power at listening, do you think? And if it's not as good as it should be, how could it listen better?
1: I think listening is very powerful. Uh, I I actually learned that because it was the only power that I had when I served as UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. I didn't have a big stick. I couldn't boss and tell governments you have to do something. I could only, I actually learned the way to, to do the job was to go to where the worst violations of human rights were taking place, sit and listen, listen carefully, and then help to bring that voice back to the Commission of Human Rights, to the UN Assembly itself, etc. And it was painful listening. I I actually have a layer in my consciousness uh, where I remember the stories, the terrible violence against women, the parents telling me about watching their children being killed outside Sierra Leone, Outside the capital of Sierra Leone, um, you know, in Goma in the DRC, in Chechnya, you know, driving in a bus in Chechnya in a destroyed city, not a building standing, and then out from the rubble would come a woman wheeling a pram and an old man, because they came to the crossroads where there were a few stalls where they could get food. Yeah, all of those memories are there, and they're all about, you know, having listened. And I find it actually makes me more emotional now when I'm back. As I was in Somalia in 2011 with concern and I had been there you know during the uh, in in 1992 when I was president and I found the tears came even more quickly um, because you know you just have more empathy for for that suffering.
0: Mary uh, listening to you now it's quite harrowing to hear those those references Um, and and I I sense from you now it must be quite upsetting to recall them at the time and even now, how do you maintain your own resilience in the face of such horror, of suffering, of grief? How, how do you keep
1: going? I think what keeps me going is um, a sense of uh, justice. I've always had that kind of inner sense. Of course, it came from you know growing up in uh, County Mayo, wedged between four brothers. Of course, I had to be care about human <laughs> rights and gender and yes. using my elbows. But um, and for whatever reason, I've had that sense of justice when I was a lawyer, taking cases, et cetera. Mm. And now it's the sense of the urgency that the children keep talking about, the Fridays for freedom, for, for, um, uh, yeah, for, for, for future. Um, they have understood in a remarkable way the science and they know the urgency for action. So, you know, every morning when I wake up, it's what more can I do? What more can I say? What more can I reach out and, and that is a powerful motivation. And for many people, if they're anxious about climate, getting active is a very good way of somehow calming the panic or the feeling that it's somehow very bad. Actually, do something and yeah. you feel better.
0: I'll come back to the climate in one moment, but just I want to join the threads whereby you referenced your brothers and ways between two sets of brothers in that sense as, as a, as a, as a middle child of five siblings. I can, I can relate to that, I have to say. But, um, If you could go back in time to your younger self and you spoke about your father, your uncle and all the rest, if you knew then what you know now, what would you say to your younger self, wedged between the two sets of brothers?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think I'd tell myself to be more patient. And I think I'd tell myself, um, you know, at an earlier stage when I started to speak about things, uh, to have more kindness and more humour in what I was saying. I was quite assertive and quite angry. Okay. You know, I was, because I could feel the injustices. Yes, But I would now use more kindness and more humour.
0: Lovely. Um, Coming to the theme of injustice then, and, and your latest book is entitled Climate Justice. And I was very struck by the parts I was reading, where you talk about human rights matter in small places. And, and it was to map that onto the Irish education context. Over two-thirds of our primary schools are teaching principal schools on the Western seaboard. Which, as I understand, will be the part of the country that has already been most affected by the shifting climate patterns, and that pattern is likely to exacerbate itself. So here we have, and it's a theme in your book, I think, the communities that arguably have contributed least to the problem, the ones suffering the most from it. You've got more, you've got equally powerful examples from around the world. Those schools, those teaching principals, their children and parents, how could they work better to safeguard the environment? And what could we all do to help?
1: Well, first of all, you're right that uh, the most impact we will feel in Ireland is what they call greater precipitation, by which they mean um, uh, heavy rain, storms, and sea surges. And we are seeing that off coasts. We're seeing it, um, uh, you know, near the Shannon in particular, and, and other places. And, and we know that that you know Ireland, parts of Dublin, parts of Cork etc. are very prone to flooding. And we need to be more resilient. What can schools do? Well, obviously, to me, the schools are so valuable because they can educate. And I love the way green schools have, um, you know, given terrific example. And children who are in green schools go home and educate their parents, which is very important. (laughs) And uh, so, you know, I I think uh, we do need to uh, learn the the nature-based ways to stop flooding and I'm not the greatest expert on this, but I know in some countries it's growing mangroves. It's probably using our wetlands better. Um, even our farming practices need to improve so that we more of the moisture is absorbed and doesn't flood and doesn't cause the problems. But we we also have to realise we're going to have to uh, you know prepare for uh, sea rise uh, because it, it, it is happening. Okay. So and. <laughs>
0: So, and once they just to schools, do what you do best. Educate. Inspire. Connect with your, your, your communities. And you, a, you talk in the book about, um, where a delegate to a climate change conference bemusedly commented about how they never thought in boxes, you know, and, cause all, all the, the big wigs, so to speak, were saying, we must think outside the box. And this person was saying, they never thought in boxes. And then a, a powerful character in the book, Constance, said, this is all outside our experience. And although that was uttered pre-COVID, for me to really resonate in the COVID context. Because where COVID lurks potentially in every corner, where travel can be so restricted, how can we now live outside our experience so as to gain a better understanding of the global impact of our daily choices?
1: I think it's a very good point. Uh, one of the things that COVID has done is bring home the fragility of our human life. I mean, this tiny virus that we can't even see has devastated the whole world and again unfairly because it's far worse for those in the informal sector who work for food and um, you saw those migrants in India who had to go home with great suffering uh, you know it, it's not as I say it exacerbates the inequalities but it has brought home the fragility it has also brought home all the inequalities and this I think is important you know I want to see connections made between these inequalities between Black Lives Matter and Fridays for, uh, for uh, Future and Me Too and, you know, all of the movements, because these are movements for a better, fairer world based on human rights, based on gender equality, based on um, tackling racism and and, and, and hate crimes and, and all that. And, you know, um, I, I think we're realizing that um, our business as usual world is not a very fair or equal world. It's Not as bad in Ireland as some other places, but we still have a lot of inequality and and unfairness. And, you know, we can do better and should do better. And and somehow COVID has made us more reflective because we have the time to reflect. And we've seen in the the lockdown that the air was clearer. We could hear the birds. Mm. Um, Somehow, you know, there was a sense of spring in that lockdown. Um, We can have a much better, healthier world when we move out of fossil fuel, as we must.
0: There are people I expect, Mary, are going to be listening to what you say and inspired on the one hand, because it's about what each of us can do as an individual. They may despair a little sometimes at parts of the world where the power of your message doesn't seem to be received as it should be. Where people despair at that perhaps challenges in terms of leadership, and they ask, what can I possibly do? I am just a teacher. I am just a student. I am just a parent in a small community or whatever. When they look at that global picture, what would you say to them?
1: I do, when I'm speaking, and like you, I much prefer to speak to a live audience because you get the feedback you can see in people's eyes that they are either agreeing with you or not. Yes. But, uh, you know, what what I do try to say is... All of us can do three things. And this really relates to climate, but it's relevant as we come out of COVID. Um, First of all, make the climate issue personal in your life because you should. All teachers should, all pupils should, all parents should because it's real and it's a crisis. So make it personal and do something that shows that you've taken ownership of it. Either, you know, recycle more carefully, maybe change your diet if you want to, whatever it is. Um, and secondly, get angry with those who have more responsibility and aren't doing enough. And that includes governments. It also includes business. It includes the investment world that's investing still in fossil fuel and shouldn't be and so on. Um, and use your voice and your vote, you know, in, in, in whatever way. And, and join organizations that are helping conservation, helping build resilience, helping adaptation, etc. And then the third thing, actually, this is the most important, and I, I love to talk about it a bit. Imagine this future that we need to be hurrying towards because this future is going to be a much healthier future, as I mentioned. The air will be cleaner. Um, Children won't suffer who have asthma from uh, the pollution. Uh, Elderly people won't suffer as much. Um, It's also going to be a world where we have green jobs, where we have broadband throughout the country. People can work um, from different parts of the country. um, And again, COVID has helped to show us that we can work, you know, more from different places and 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 work well, uh, because of uh, the technology. And uh, we we need then coming out of COVID um, to take into account these inequalities and look for a better world. I think the the EU is beginning to do that. The EU has now got a green new deal. It's got a strategy for biodiversity. It's got a um, a a farm to fork policy that's better than the previous common agricultural policy. And um, I thought that Ursula uh, von der Leyen, in her State of the Union speech, which is a speech I think people should read, um, talked about the need for a basic income for everybody and safety nets and social floor. Um, that's the kind of thinking that we need to have coming out of COVID.
0: You speak of the power of the imagination, which is, I think, as you say, a very powerful point to close on. I want to double back a little bit, Mary, to your point about responsibilities. Have I heard you correctly? You talked about that we make it personal and get angry with those who have greater responsibility to to lead and so on. When you look at things as basic as I drove here this morning, for example, in a hybrid car, not an electric one yet, but it's, it's a hybrid. It's halfway there, literally. Are we... As individuals and communities, do you think we're ready to make our own personal choices, the difficult ones that will be required to make a contribution, or have we got a way to go yet?
1: I think we have a little way to go because we're not talking about it enough. Mm. We're not having these conversations. I would hope that in every county in Ireland, there would be a conversation. I loved the reference to Mehl. When I was uh, seeking votes in 1990, 30 years ago, to become president of Ireland, uh, I learned what was happening around the country. And what was happening had been influenced by the common agricultural policy. There was a bit more money around in rural Ireland, in, in, in parishes and, and villages and towns. But they hadn't got the facilities that the city had. So people were volunteering. The spirit of mehel, mehel clubs, um, uh, you know, a self-development, which was astonishing. It was something that I talked up during the pres- my, my campaign. Uh, I had been to Alighi's to um, meet the coastal communities from around Ireland, I was, you know, so affected by what they were doing in their communities for young people, for sports, for the elderly, for, you know, um, and, you know, we need that again, but we need it linked to the crisis of climate and the need to learn to adapt to that crisis, learn to be clever about it and learn to uh, see a future that provides better jobs, and more equality. And uh, yeah, this conversation needs to be intensive and schools can really help. Um, I was glad that Mary, uh, Mary I, as I call it, Mary Immaculate in, in Limerick asked me to do a foreword for a book on educating about climate change. I don't think it has come out yet, but I'm all for schools educating more to help this dialogue. And it has to happen in every town, in every county, all over the, you know, in, on, you know, in, in a very intensive way. We're all part of it, and we have to do it. Just
0: before I come back on that question, just to remind our audience that, of course, we welcome your questions and comments via the social media channels, via the Hopin platform. If any questions come in, I'll see them here in front of me, and I'll be able to put them to Mary then throughout the interview. So please keep your comments and questions coming. Mary, you spoke there about imagining and, in a sense, unpacking through conversation. And school communities, perhaps, and schools themselves, perhaps being the anchor of those conversations. One of the most common genuine frustrations I would have heard in my conversations with teachers and parents around the country is the challenge of time. So they're busy. You know, the teacher's teaching the full day, preparing, you know, um, after the school day is finished, preparing for the next day. Parents, hopefully, are working part or full-time where people feel they haven't got the time. So they're listening to you and say, yes, absolutely, we have to imagine a better future. Yes, we must talk about it, but I haven't got the time. What would your response be?
1: I think we need to make time. Okay. Uh, it's too important. Uh, we're not in um, a normal, and there isn't any normal. Um, there's what we might call a new normal at the moment, which is under COVID. Yes, um, That will pass. That will pass. Uh, we'll see our way out of it. It may take a little more time than we fear, but mm-hmm. we will see a way out of it. But looming behind it is that very serious, but nonetheless, um, opportunity um, to imagine and to work for that better future. Um, to me, you know, there needs to be a, a leadership in education. I, I also think this ha- needs to happen at third level, um, where the focus is on um, how do we build back better? How do we as a society not return to a way of life that wasn't giving a safe future to our children? <clears throat> we shouldn't do that. And therefore, it's, it's very demanding, but it's also quite energizing. Uh, you know, it's, 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 uh, it, it's, it's, it's the subject of a lot of discussion. And I would love to see the same spirit of Mehel all over the country. I often talk about the Tidy Towns competition. I loved, as president of Ireland, giving the top prize to whatever often a small town or a small village. I remember giving it to Malin in Inishowen, where my mother comes from, and being so proud that they would win the overall contest that particular year. Um, And we need an equivalent, an incentive to um, counties and to parishes to uh, move in the right direction, think about it and think about the future of it and, and work towards it. And obviously... The extension of broadband is vital for that uh, because that's part of that future.
0: You're sparking a slightly leading question, a Green Jersey leading question, Mary, if you don't mind, insofar as you speak very powerfully there of the existing social fabric in our country. So there's the Tidy Towns. We have the GAA, for example, yeah. the, the teaching principal schools. We are a, a nation of connected small communities, but a total population on the island but maybe six and a half million, a little bit over that. Are we in a position, perhaps, you'd think, if we can crack it ourselves to be a leading voice at a global level about about climate change, is that too much to hope for as a nation?
1: It's very interesting. I actually was asked that question um, at a meeting of the Irish ambassadors recently, um, and I spoke again virtually um, to that meeting, which was a virtual meeting. And I said that we need to be humble because until recently, Ireland was a laggard on climate. Now we have... Um, what I believe is actually good government policy on climate, um, which will lead to a climate bill to go through the Dáil and Senate, um, that will lead to climate budgets where we will be reducing our emissions and measuring that reduction. That's top-down. It's good, but it's not sufficient. What we need is the bottom-up that I'm talking about. We need that conversation uh, throughout the country. And then uh, when we've had that, I think we can give a leadership in showing how we have moved from being a laggard yes. to being a leader yes. <laughs> with, with that kind of humility. And I mentioned that to the um, missions because Ireland, I'm very proud to say, is becoming a member in January of the Security Council. That's a tough thing for any country. I'm really proud that Ireland wants to do it. Uh, there's no gain in it for a country. It's actually very, very hard work. And a lot of it is hard to measure, but it is the rule of law It is bringing peace. It is trying to persuade the big powers that are not doing enough to move in the right direction and so on. And I'm very proud that Ireland is doing it. On climate, we need to be humble and take the steps that will give us that leadership role. But we're perfectly capable of having a leadership role. Mary,
0: the other question that's occurring to you as you speak is you talk about the importance of the bottom up as well as the, the, the leadership at the top. How well do those two elements connect currently? Do you think is there more could be done to connect the com- if those conversations happen at the local level in the way you uh, hope and, and imagine there? Are they well positioned to connect with the national, or do we need to do more to connect the local and the national to be- to make a difference here?
1: Well, I, I don't want to, you know, get too politically involved yes. for obvious reasons. Yes. Um, as a, <laughs> a New Zealander, but uh, and you mentioned some of the strengths in the country, and they are very real. Um, I mean, I would love to see the GAA take on the climate issue because that would make the conversation much deeper. You know, just take it on and look carefully and see, you know, where and indeed, you know, there are sporting um, uh, groups um, that are um, making sure that their sports equipment is made in a way that's climate um, savvy, if I could put it that way, climate smart Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, all kinds of different ways. Um, I happen to have a hat that might surprise you. Um, I chair a global centre for sport and human rights because I place such emphasis on sport. And I'm proud to say, if I'm proud of one thing, that I was the president who opened up going to all the other sports, not just the uh, final of the the, the hurling and the football, which I Mm. loved, and which Nick, my husband, was so happy to be in the prime seat with me. Mm. But we also went to the rugby, to the cricket, to the hockey, uh, to women's sports. I was the first president to go to the women's GAA football and the camogie. And, you know, um, uh, so sport is very important and it's very important in schools as well.
0: It's free to touch on that because my eldest daughter, Ashling, is a goalie in the local club in, in Lucan Sarsfields in Dublin. And she recorded the program that was broadcast recently, The New Wales. It was a, a, a sample of stories of uh, people either who had migrated into the country or of migrant backgrounds who had uh, kind of thrived in the GAA uh, context. Can you say a bit more about that Global Centre on Sport and Human Rights? Is sport doing enough, do you think, in that space? Or could it be doing more?
1: When we started to work on it, we started with a steering committee that I chaired, um, which was a virtual steering committee before COVID, because there were people all over the world from different backgrounds, they were sporting um, associations, you know, of athletes, et cetera. They were the um, big advertisers of sport, like the Olympics and um, uh, you know the the, uh, the final, the, the um, football, mm-hmm. um, because they were worried about uh, the fact that uh, you know the, the, there was a, a corruption problem. There were, you know, they were worried about the advertising. Um, it was, you know, um, the main bodies were the Office of High Commissioner for Human Rights, the International Labour Organization, and the International Employers and Trade Unions, all based in Geneva. People that I knew very well. That's why I think they chose me to chair it. And um, it, we gradually realized sport matters, all you know, at every level. Now we were mainly focused on the big sporting events globally, like the um, Qatar having the football, how many people die building those stadiums because of the heat, because of lack of equipment, even lack of water? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, start there. What about racism in sport, discrimination in sport, discrimination against women's sports, discrimination uh, against trans people, and and, and on and on and on. So there are so many issues. The latest issue was a, a wrestler in Iran who was very well known in Iran. He took part in a protest and he was arrested and tortured and and um, we tried to save his life he was recently killed which was by, by Iran executed you know such a sad situation and um, so we need uh, we need sport to to speak out on these issues
0: there there are so many already in in this conversation where you've touched on so many different strands of equality of equity uh, mm-hmm. and and it's antithesis of course of inequality and injustice and sometimes it can seem overwhelming if you're trying to resolve these injustices. There seems to be so many of them. What do you think, and you talk about empathy in particular a couple of times during the conversation, for someone either as a national leader, a regional leader, or an individual community, what are the common principles do you think of a just and
1: fair world? <laughs> That's a big question. <laughs> um, I, I think a just and fair world um, complies with Article 1 of the Universal Declaration that all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. So those, that dignity and those rights should be respected wherever they live in the world. And yet that isn't the case. Um, very often it's poverty that deprives people of a knowledge about and an awareness that they have those rights. But when you do empower people, and education, of course, is the great enabler. That's why I'm so uh, supportive of what Veltje is doing and of education generally. Um, it opens people to the fact that they have rights. Now, I spoke earlier about you know, um, human behavior, uh, collective human behavior being important. We actually have to recognize that um, in our world today, in our very connected world because of technology, we all have to be global citizens and take seriously what's happening. Take seriously the quality of government. We're not seeing good leadership, by and large, enough in our world at the moment. Um, we're seeing, you know, the populism, uh, the American first um, approach, other countries first. And um, this is not uh, the way in which we should be fulfilling the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the 2030 agenda with its sustainable development goals to bring everybody out of poverty and leave no one behind, um, so important. If I can,
0: I'll I'll take a slight segue now from that, and and, uh, I'm going to ask a slightly provocative question, if that's all right. But but you you title your book, Climate Justice, A Man-Made Problem with a Feminist Solution, and as everybody watching will be aware, you are a woman and I am a man. And it's it's an in-house joke in my in the office of the Teaching Council. When I go on holidays, they take out the quill and the vellum because I'm so anti-paper, for example. I try to do my little bit to, to uh, advance climate justice. What role do you see for men and indeed for people of all genders in progressing climate justice?
1: Well, first of all, I want to explain when I say that Climate change is a man-made problem that requires a feminist solution. Mm -hmm. Man-made, of course, is generic. It applies to all of us. Mm -hmm. And a feminist solution is one that I hope more and more men will and are actually embracing. What is the feminist solution? It's the solution that leads with a women's um, uh, tried and trusted way of leading, which is collaborative, problem-solving, listening, listening listening to all the voices that need to be heard on a subject. And, you know, I mentioned earlier the importance of governance at the moment, and it's actually women-led governments that have tended to do better out of COVID. I mean, the, the notable example is New Zealand. Yes. You know, taking a tough decision, listening to the science, but bringing your people with you um, in a in a way that shows the empathy and understanding of how it's affecting them, but bringing them with you. And it's that, collect- it's that feminist leadership, that I think is very relevant in the um, uh, 21st century. And it's a leadership that can connect the dots of the various movements, as I said, the dots of Black Lives Matter, of Fridays for Future, of Me Too, of, you know, those who uh, want to tackle violence against women, domestic violence, all of those things. You know, we, we, we need to kind of uh, encourage a linking across and, and, and um uh, that woman who said, you know, I um, when, when, when people were saying, uh, they were, we need to think outside the box. Yeah. And she said, well, in my community, we don't think in boxes. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> we, we need to, to learn that.
0: <laughs> so I suppose if I understand you correctly, it's not so much a gender-specific reference, but more a mindset you're talking about in those references.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. It, and that's a- why we, on my podcast, uh, Mothers of Invention, where we mainly talk to women, mm-hmm. we also have had now three good men Um, Deliberately, not not too many at any time, but um, uh, but uh, it's because uh, this is for you know men have as as much or maybe more of a role to play because they tend to have more power in our world today. Still, Um, we haven't got that equality yet that we must get uh, in order to have the right balance. Um, But we, when we get there, we will have a much better world, a much wiser world, um, much better decisions. I, I would tend to agree, Mary. And
0: if I may, the three men you've happened to have on the podcast so far, what distinguishes them as men that men like me could learn from, do you think?
1: Well, all three were clearly uh, in in favor of feminist um, learning. One was Kumi Naidu, um recently head of Amnesty International, a long, long time friend of mine. And uh, he would be very comfortable describing himself as a feminist. Um, the second one was the Former president of the Maldives, uh, Mohammed um, uh, Nasheed. Um, he uh, was a great human rights person before he became president. We talked a lot about gender and the importance of it. And he led very well while he was president and, and was very active in the climate space. And then he was imprisoned um, afterwards. And you know, um, anyway, he he was a very good voice. And the one we had recently is somebody um, who works in the South Bronx in New York. York City on agricultural cooperatives or any other kind of cooperatives um, a cooperative approach because he feels we need to get away from a dominant capitalism to a more cooperative approach to the well-being of people and he was very eloquent and very feminist in fact he didn't want to come on our program our podcast because he said I, we're, I, we're women-led in my organization why don't you have one of the women yes but we actually wanted him because he was the founder of this women-led organization <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant.
0: Well, that, that, lots for me to reflect on. So, Mary, if I may, there's a couple of questions come in from the audience, and one of them um, might segue nicely from the point you're just making. It's question three on the screen in front of me here, where the person is asking, do you think getting more women leading at the top in education and business will lead to more equal society?
1: Oh, I profoundly do. I really do. It's not that women are better than men in that you know, sort, of, sort of simplistic sense. It's that humanity is better when we have the benefit of both. Uh, You know, um, when we have cabinets that are 50 percent women, when we have parliaments that are 50 percent women, it is better for society. And we can see that. And uh, I'm I'm glad that we're that the world is talking about the fact that women are leading better out of COVID um, because, you know, that's important. You know, when I was elected president, I remember my one sense was I must do this projecting the idea that it's an advantage for me to be president and to be a woman, because I will do a better job, I hope. You know, I was actually trying to convey that to encourage um, others and to encourage. But I'm not as interested in the one woman breaking a glass ceiling. Yes, that can be important. I'm more interested in the critical mass of getting the 50 percent that will make the real difference.
0: You're touching very, very nicely on another question here. You're speaking in many ways of diversity and the importance of a rich diversity leading to better decisions, better thinking and so on. Someone here is asking, um, the teaching profession um, is is three quarters female, one quarter male approximately, but it's not reflective of the diversity of the communities from an ethnicity point of view. So what do you think could be done to change that homogeneity of the profession to meet the contemporary diversity of Ireland, do you think?
1: I think that's a really important point and we need to learn more in Ireland about valuing diversity and bringing it into our power structures uh, because we value it really. Um, And, uh, you know, I I, I think I I didn't value diversity myself as much until I became UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. And then I learned uh, the importance of uh, all kinds of diversity. Um, uh, And uh, I learned... Uh, in a climate sense, the diversity of the indigenous wisdom in preserving forests, etc. Um, in Ireland, in the teaching profession, it would be good if teachers can see um, if um, children from different backgrounds can see teachers that they say he or she is like me. I, you know that, that's also important. Absolutely. Um, you touch on the, the, the UN and a number
0: of answers, particularly the one in terms of the core principles of a fair and just society. And someone here has asked, how can we as civil society organisations and educators teach or convey a better understanding of the role of the UN and its importance?
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I, I think what I realised, um, you know, after uh, it took me probably a couple of years as High Commissioner, um, was to understand how profoundly the UN Charter and the UN Declaration of Human Rights are actually also part of governments, because governments over and over again have um, affirmed the principles, the values, and yet we don't um, bring them down to local level enough and we don't live them enough in in that sense of uh, you know understanding them. Um, when we are in a, an anniversary year, as we are at the moment um, of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. There tends to be more attention. But it's a document um, that Eleanor Roosevelt chaired the commission that produced the Universal Declaration in 1948. She was a teacher, an educator, a journalist. She wasn't a lawyer. And she made sure that the mainly lawyers who drafted the declaration under her chairmanship, would. she said, "It, it has to be written in language that can be understood in small places close to home because that's where human rights matter. She was the first to make oh, that clear. Wow. You know, it was really important. And and so it, it is written in very simple, straightforward language. And it would be good. Um, I had one experience um, fairly recently um, uh, of, ge- of being um, um, present at a, um, a graduation of graduates of the School of Public Health in Harvard, the School of Public Health. And they got a copy of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights um, into their hands as part of the graduation. I thought that was pretty good. That was lovely. Um, just to segue
0: again, because the questions are coming in, 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 in a certain variety and order here, but one has struck me here in terms of, I'm a big fan of David Attenborough, and I watch a lot of his programmes, and particularly his, yeah. his programmes on marine life and the ocean and the diversity and the immensity of, of life in it. Well, someone here has touched on this where they say, how do we encourage teachers to incorporate marine themes in the curriculum as part of the climate change and climate action conversation? Perhaps the question is touching the idea that the ocean, of course, we always see is the bit from the shoreline. We're not aware that there's more water on the world than there is land, obviously. How, how are we overlooking, neglecting the marine element of climate change, do you think?
1: Again, that's a really, really good uh, point. Uh, And absolutely right. And we are an island, Uh, So we should particularly uh, pay attention. And um, marine life is, uh, you know, very fruitful for education. Uh, I'm not an expert in this area, but for example, we need to protect more of our ocean uh, off the coast of Ireland. Um, I'm part of a a, a sort of championing of um, uh, nature, a campaign for nature. And we are advocating for 30% of land, and 30% of the oceans globally to be protected by 2030. Ireland doesn't protect 30% of our ocean at all. I can't remember what the percentage is, but mm-hmm. it's nothing like that. We should. And and then you know. Uh, so I I I I think I think you know if we. If we, if we think in terms of climate justice, and maybe you should ask me what I mean by climate justice, because yes. I'm dying to tell you. Well, go ahead, tell it so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I, you know, over time, because I've been dealing with this for the best part now of almost 20 years, I've seen, I think, five layers of climate injustice. And the first layer is the disproportionate impact on the poorest countries and poorest communities and small island states who will go under if we don't change our ways, and indigenous peoples who are least responsible. So that's a clear injustice. Then within that, the, the gender injustice, because it, it affects women and girls differently because of their different social roles and their, and their less power and less rights. They often don't have land rights, they don't have access to capital, et cetera, et cetera. But they have to put food on the table, go further in the drought for water and so on. The third layer is what the children are telling us, the intergenerational injustice. And they're right. They're right to call us out with their Fridays for Future. Absolutely right. The fourth layer is a subtle one. It's the the, the injustice of the different pathways to um, uh, the economies that, that the industrialized countries like Ireland had and developing countries now have. Ireland, like other industrialised countries, we built our economy on fossil fuel. And we should respect the workers who helped us to build that economy, including the those who are being laid off now because we're changing from peat um, uh, as being a source that was uh, you know, worse than coal and brought less right. heat. And now we have to get out of it. But th- there are workers and communities that have to be brought with us through new investment and new jobs. Uh, that's the just... Uh, um, Uh, They just transition. But uh, developing countries are being asked to bring their people out of poverty with clean energy, and they want to do that. They said that before Paris. They would like to do that, but they need the investment, they need the jobs, they need the training, and we're not generously giving it. We're not showing that solidarity in the um, richer parts of the world. So the countries that have found oil and gas and coal are saying, why can't we use this like, like you did? Um, and that's a kind of injustice, because if they do, there will be no future um, they will use up the carbon budget, as we say. So that's an injustice and, and, and a dilemma that we have to solve through the conferences on climate. And then the final injustice is the most important one in many ways and goes back to marine. It's nature, the, the, the loss of biodiversity, the extinction of species that we're being warned about. And this is very serious. And This is what David Attenborough has been speaking about so eloquently and he, he used to speak about it in wonderment and joy and, you know, expressing his love of nature. Now he's speaking starkly of the crisis of biodiversity and the crisis of climate. And because he's a trusted voice, it's wonderful because we need trusted voices to warn us, um, not in a political way, but in a way that gets people, yes, I must pay attention to this.
0: May we're coming towards the last few minutes of the conversation. I can't believe we're at this point already because I'm, I'm really enjoying uh, listening to you and talking to you. Um, your reference to David Attenborough and your reference to the inter- intergenerational injustice reminds me in respects of my own grandfather who passed away many years ago. Like David Attenborough strikes me with this man who inspires, and he's in mid-90s, and it's like he'd live forever. I can't imagine a world without him is there a risk of a them and us arising between the more senior generations and the younger ones? I mean, you spoke very movingly of the fact when, I think it was your uncle, if I remember correctly, spoke to you as an adult and inspired you, and was able to communicate with you. Um, and I often wonder, is there a kind of a, a dangerous fallacy emerging whereby passing the torch to the next generation lets the current one off the hook? So how can we encourage more intergenerational collaboration to address the real crisis we're facing?
1: That intergenerational conversation is something that I feel is so, so important. It was my grandfather who did oh, not to speak to me as a yes. child and gave me the oxygen <laughs> of um, <coughs> talking to me seriously. Yes. Um, you know, I, I can't tell you, I, I've already told you, my admiration for those children who are part of the Fridays for Future movement mm-hmm. because they have understood the situation. And I think they are part of wanting an intergenerational conversation. The elders are very keen on that intergenerational conversation. We've given space on our website, theelders.org, for blogs by young climate activists. And uh, they're wonderful blogs, we've learned a lot from them. And I engage a lot in those kind of conversations uh, in order to learn as well as to contribute. And what I've learned is we have to create space for young people to have more possibility of making more change because they are tech smart in a way. I'm, I'm an elder, I hate technology. Um, they're, they're, they're on top of it. Yes. And uh, just to give you an example, um, we have one more podcast um, episode in this particular series of Mothers of Invention. And what we're going to do, we haven't had it yet, it's next week. Um, we're going to hand it over to two young climate activists. And Maeve uh, Higgins, my colleague, and Tamali, who has joined us from Sri Lanka, and myself, we will listen. So it's again the power of listening. Yes. So we will give it to them deliberately because we need to create opportunities for young people to have more possibility of being part of the change we need to make. And mm-hmm. um, they 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 need it more than we do, and they know what needs to be done, and they need uh, they need the, the power to do it. Mary,
0: as you've always done, you've covered such a breadth and depth of of humanity in, in our discussion here. Uh, big issues that can frighten, overwhelm sometimes, but you've kind of offered us thoughts and how as individuals communities we can, I suppose, begin to make our own little difference in, in those seemingly overwhelming challenges. And I don't know about you, but on a personal level, I'm sh- sure many people watching would feel the same, poetry can be one of those small places where we come to, in moments of quietude simply to ground ourselves. And as we're all aware, The great poet Derek Mahon passed away yesterday, the Belfast-born poet. I know um, you're very fond of him and his work. Um, Do you want uh, the importance of poetry in our lives on the one hand, but also I understand you have a poem of his that you want to read to to bring the conversation to a close?
1: Yes, I would like to do that because poetry has always been extremely important in my life. Uh, Thanks in part to my friendship with Ivan Boland, who sadly died quite recently. We were in Trinity together, uh, she was the very practical, uh, computer smart poet, and I was the dreamy lawyer. You know, yes. we were strange opposites, um, but we were lifelong friends. But through her, I learned um, the joy of poetry. And um, the books beside my bed tend to be poetry books, and I read them a lot. And I wasn't close to Derek Mann in the same way, but I think he was a, an extraordinary poet. So we can be very proud of him and of other poets, and it's sad when somebody like that dies. So I would like to read a poem of his, which I think is very relevant to this COVID time and even to the conversation we've had, Tomás. So if I may, I'm going to read Please. Everything is Going to Be All Right. How should I not be glad to contemplate the clouds clearing beyond the dorm or window and a high tide reflected in the ceiling? There will be dying, there will be dying, but there is no need to go into that. The poems flow from the hand unbidden, and the hidden source is the watchful heart. The sun rises in spite of everything, and the far cities are beautiful and bright. I lie here in a riot of sunlight, watching the daybreak and the clouds flying. Everything is going to be all right.
0: Mary Robinson, it has been a, a rare privilege and joy for me to have this conversation with you. Um, uh, the the only way it could be possibly better is if we were in the same space but we know that cannot be Um, you've left us with a very powerful balanced positive note that acknowledges the suffering of people but at the same time reassures us through riots of sunlight everything will be alright so I want to thank you and and I think no more than David Attenborough you remind me of my own grandfather in many ways you have this effervescent energy um, and hope that you consistently radiate uh, and long may you continue to do so, Mary Robinson. Uh, so, thank you so much uh, for the conversation. I hope our paths will cross again in the future. Go to meet him, Mahogan. Go meet meet